Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Our guest is so experienced and important uh, that I think we need to go right to him. Carl Weinberg, High Frequency Economics, for years uh, on international economics and particularly debt workout. And just for John Farrell, who I was probably listening, he probably doesn't know that I studied to be a Zermatt mountain guide for Did three you? years back in the days of my youth. He was he, what? He, he emailed me. True. Awesome. You come out of Zermatt and there's Furl, F-U-R-L-X. Fury. 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 Right. Okay, excuse me. And I think he was above Fury. Like he was really making a serious Wait, attempt. Up on Trocknersteg? You know, I don't know. Or the climb Wait, of Matterhorn? Did, I'm sorry. How did you make your way from, from being a mountain guide to where you are today. Well, I was employed full time at a government agency in Paris, and I didn't really have much that's, to do, so I had eight weeks of European classic. vacation. So European I went to, government I went to jobs. Zermatt, you know. So it was a good way have to learn French. Have you climbed the Matterhorn? Hmm? Have you climbed the no, Matterhorn? No, 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 no. When they took out the ropes, that's when I decided I didn't want to be a mountain guide. The skis, yeah. the coup, the coupons, all that stuff that I was fine with. But when they brought out the ropes yeah. and they said climb, I said no way. That's for somebody my, my else. My whole framework's a Disney movie from like 55 years ago that you know we were riveted by. As kids, oh, I thought it know. was the Clint Eastwood movie from uh, some time ago, the Iger Sanction. That the, was very inspirational. Yeah, that it was as well. Let us get to the topic of the moment, right. which is your China note that you write at high frequencies. What will your China note be for this week? How do you fold? Hong Kong into your China calculus. Well, luckily, we're going on vacation at High Frequency Economics, so there won't be a China note this oh, week. Oh, come on. But if I, if I were writing, you know, the, the, the question for Hong Kong and the way I like to think about it is what's going to happen six months or 12 months from now? Is there still going to be a Hong Kong? And do we tell companies, our clients, who have business stakes in Hong Kong and businesses that depend on being in Hong Kong, do they stay or do they go? And I think that's really the core economic question. Right now, there's not a sign that anyone is leaving. And while some people are pessimistic on the latest developments, other people are saying that, well, you know, by becoming more violent, the protesters are isolating the middle class and that they lose traction, therefore, as a result of all of that. So I'm looking for the longer term. My guess is that there still will be a Hong Kong, that it will still be China's gateway to capital markets. It'll still be the gateway for businesses both ways in and out of China, and that it's too important to fail, but I can't tell you what shape it's going to be and what the, the format of that settlement's going to be, but I'm confident that this isn't the end of Hong Kong. One thing that I'm struck by right now is this just adds to this growing feeling of worry in markets, both you know stemming from China, stemming from trade, stemming from just the global economic backdrop with a growing number of economists saying that we are heading toward recession. I'm struggling to just sort of put this into that perspective. Have we reached a tipping point at which we are going to a downturn that central banks cannot prevent at this point. Well, working your question backwards, all right, central banks don't have enough tools to deal with a lot of economic adversity right now. I mean, the ECB is tapped out, despite what Mario Draghi says. The Bank of Japan is tapped out, despite what Kuroda tells you. Uh, the Fed has some room to maneuver, and they're exercising it. But the problems that are facing the economy caused by uncertainty, caused by trade risk, caused by political risk, caused by, I'll say, a Trump risk, all right, caused by Italy risk, all right, these are not the things that monetary policy can fix. And it's a, it's a hard fact that 
public policy may be able to soften a business cycle downturn, but it's never been able to actually prevent one. So if you say we have a 20% chance of a recession in the United States, that's probably true. All right. Is it going to be this year? I can't yeah. tell you that for sure. Can the Fed prevent it? I don't think so. Okay. But yields in right now, we are in six basis points in the 10-year, right now in only five basis points. And the heart of the matter, and I, again, as I mentioned earlier, I put you in a class with Paul DeGuar of LSE and Charles Weiplotz of Switzerland. It's saying, why can't we work this out? Do you look at the turmoil we're in now is simply nobody wants to clear markets, nobody wants to take the proverbial loss? Well, I think that right now investors are being reluctant. <laughs> All right, to take on a, a lot of risk. They're putting their money into equities, I think, not because they want to take on risk, but because other avenues of investment are not rewarding to them. Bonds have low or negative yields wherever you look. Cash has low or negative yields wherever they look. So moving into risky assets is not a choice. It's a, it's a necessity to get any positive rate of return. So I think that we're in a peculiar place, a place that I don't remember being in before in terms of global financial markets. Well, how do you look at the inertial force of the chronic nature? That's, that's excuse me, that's Chicago physics talk. Uh, inertia? You know, early. Physics. Uh, how do you look at the inertial force or the chronic nature of negative interest rates? Does it matter that it's been a long time we've been doing this? Well, I think the longer we go, the greater the risk of a systemic failure somewhere being caused by negative interest rates. Big pools of money can't survive at negative interest rates. Their cash flows go away. Banks can't make money lending at negative interest rates. And they make money anyway taking deposits, deposits at negative interest rates, being paid to take money in. Why take on the risk of lowering their rate and then lower their, their rate of return by making a loan? Yeah. So there's a credit crunch inherent in this negative interest rate thing. And a credit crunch is a known economy killer. All right. Since I'm on with Tom Keene, I'm going to rip the script up because oh that's what we do, right? I, I'm struggling to understand the flip side. There's so much pessimism here, and people are so uh, ready for a downturn in the fact that central bankers don't have ammunition, that what's the risk that things are better than they seem, that things are actually pretty good, and that central banks are entering an easing cycle at a time when we don't need it, and the economy is gonna take off, and we're finally gonna see inflation. I mean, what's that risk? Well, I admire your optimism, but uh, no one I, has ever said that before. But, but, <laughs> so but, thank but, you. But I don't share this as someone who's list, having listened to you. I think I'm at least as pessimistic as you are. But what I learned in 2008 is that you don't know what you don't know when you move off the grid. And we're off the grid right now with negative yield curves in Europe. I mean, the German yield curve is negative all the way out to 30 years. The Dutch curve is not far behind that. All right, the French curve is moving in that direction. Even the pound sterling is moving that direction. I've never experienced negative interest rates like this, just as I never experienced falling house prices. And I didn't even know the right questions, even though we saw house prices falling in 2008. We didn't know the right questions to ask about, you know, would it take out the financial system? So I'm very nervous personally, more so than ever before, because negative yield curve in Germany after 30 years is so far off the grid, yeah. I don't know. I, I would note, Lisa, with Deutsche Bank and other EU banks breaking down this morning, sort of touching on lows of July, Deutsche Bank is off 13% from the enthusiasm of early July. Yeah, and Commerce Bank reaching a new yeah. record low as people oh, I take missed a that. look. Yeah, I know Commerce that. Bank is tumbling right now. Uh, and and re really kind of speaking to those incredibly negative yields and this feeling that they're not going to get positive. But, Carl, I mean, you, what you said really, really resonates with me. We're off the grid, and we don't even know the questions to ask. 
How do we even get a framework for what to be asking? Is it systemic? Listen to Bloomberg surveillance. <laughs> well, you know, right, right now, this right now, if brought to you by Tom Keith. Right now, if you're an investor, what are your choices? All right, money. If you're an investor in Germany, money has no value. You have to pay people to take it off your hands. That's what negative interest rates means. So you don't want to hold cash. You don't want to hold bonds because the government doesn't need your stinking money. They're running a surplus, all right? Corporates don't need your stinking money because the ECB has driven their yields so low. They're sitting on piles of cash. So nobody needs your money. So what do you do with your money? So the outcomes from this are money goes into stocks and you get a bubble in stocks that eventually bursts, maybe not tomorrow or the next day, but at some point. Or here's the scariest outcome of all, that people who don't have use for money convert that money into things they do have use for, goods and services. And if that happens faster than the economy can create those goods and services, mm -hmm. you get an inflation. And everyone thinks in the textbook, you know, it says you print the money and you get the inflation today. But you don't get the inflation today. You get <clears> the inflation tomorrow or the next day or the day after. And maybe what's no. lurking behind all of this is money dies and loses all of its value is that we get a big surge of money into consumption right. and that's a problem. Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. High frequency economics on this important day. Lisa Bramowitz and Tom Keene. Right now, a, a really smart Bloomberg survey in recent months, Singapore the best airport in the world, then Haneda, Tokyo, Incheon, Seoul, Doha, and number five is Hong Kong. Ari Von Mann provides leadership for all of Bloomberg News in Hong Kong, and she has traveled out to the airport uh, today. Yvonne, I noticed on FlightAware all the domestic flights to China disappeared. Some of the longer international flights still landing. What is the likelihood that Hong Kong's airport would open on your Tuesday morning, say about 8 p.m. tonight, New York time. Yeah, it's hard to say, John, but we have heard from the Hong Kong Authority, at least earlier, saying that they are hoping to resume those flights uh, on Tuesday morning. But as of now, I'm looking at the screen right now, and, and in bright red, you see most, if not all, of the flights here today leaving Hong Kong have been canceled. The Hong Kong Airport Authority telling us They've never had to shut down the airport like this before. Unclear just how many flights have been impacted. But the clear, what we're seeing right now is that the, the, the crowds are thinning out a little bit here. Things have died down just a bit, but there's still about hundreds, I would say, if not thousands of people still sitting out around the arrival halls. No sign of police officers just yet. A lot of questions on whether they were going to use force yeah. to clear out these crowds is what we saw over the weekend. Yvonne, I guess this really highlights the big question. At what point will the Hong Kong unrest bleed into the economy and cause a real problem with businesses moving out of the region? Are we seeing some sort of uh, signs that this is a tipping point for businesses, that it is a sign that we're not going back to the way it was? Well, it's, we haven't seen signs just yet. I think most people are still not seeing the, the threat of capital outflows. Uh, but businesses are certainly reeling. We've seen during these protests for the last 10 straight weeks now, businesses are not opening. They're not opening their doors while those protesters are marching. And we even saw today with Cathay Pacific shares tumbling to that 10-year low uh, after Beijing added pressure on these businesses as well. There were several staff members that turned out and, and showed up in some of these demonstrations uh, we've heard from sources telling us the Chinese 
Chinese state-run company is urging their employees not to fly Cathay Pacific, whether for personal or business trips. So we are seeing Beijing adding a little bit more pressure to businesses who are supporting, if not tolerating, with, so with the demonstrations we've seen. At what point do you expect Beijing to send in troops? I mean, this has sort of been the expectation that at some point the mainland will clamp down more seriously. Are we getting to that point? At this point, we're, we're not not yet. I mean, we've, we've heard from the Hong Kong Macau liaison office spokesman there earlier at a press conference, and yeah. they ratchet up the rhetoric, at least right now, saying that these protesters are committing serious crimes, that they're seeing signs of terrorism. But in terms of actually supporting police officers in Hong Kong or sending the PLA, we haven't seen that quite yet. The Hong Kong, though, mind you, today, earlier this afternoon, showed off some of their new water cannons out there uh, to the media, which yeah. uh, we saw similar signs of that back in Occupy 2014. So perhaps they're preparing for further escalation. Sound. You know, Yvonne, I could make a joke about it and talk about Yvonne Mann's eight-bedroom, 12-bath house up Mount Nicholson, uh, you know, here in Hong Kong. But seriously, uh, Yvonne, what is what are you feeling on the streets and in the neighborhoods as people try to get on with their lives in Hong Kong, away from the media, what is a tone you observe in Kowloon and in Hong Kong? It's interesting, John, because when you take a look at international media, and, and it seems like all we see is, is violence. And in, in certain aspects, you do see that. There are you know extremes on both sides, where we've seen both sides hardening their stands, violence erupting, protesters throwing petrol bombs, you have police firing tear gas inside subway stations and whatnot. Yeah. But if you take with the rest of, of Hong Kong, relatively speaking, I would say there are areas that are still safe. I mean, I have people from abroad ask me, are you safe? And, and for the most part, we are. And, and, but the one thing that people are worried about now is the impact on the economy. We had Carrie Lam, the chief executive, speaking over the weekend saying she yeah. thinks the impact of these protests, the economy, could be worse than SARS perhaps even as worse as the 2008 yeah. financial crisis. More reports today with our Yvonne Mann at the Hong Kong International Airport. Right now we look at international uh, relations in, I guess, China, but through the prism of Washington. Jeffrey Wright joins us with Eurasia Group uh, as we consider some of the China themes in Washington. Jeffrey, you've got a brilliant note on Huawei. This is the Chinese company with a big uproar about whether they should be in this country or that country or doing business. Let me begin with the basics. Do the Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill, do they agree about the president's approach to Huawei or are there points of nuance? Uh, there are some points of nuance, but I think there's quite a lot of agreement on Capitol Hill. The, the person that's perhaps having second thoughts is Trump himself, who's more interested in, in trading Huawei away for something else, it looks like. Well, what, if we trade them away, what do we trade them to? I mean, you know, it's not like, you know, you're trading Oriental Avenue for New York Avenue and Monopoly. I mean, <laughs> what do we trade that's them? True. What do we trade them away to? Well, this opportunity may have passed over the last week or two as things have gotten worse. But I think if you go back to Osaka in early June, Trump was interested in trading a, a Huawei settlement for uh, trade concessions from the Chinese. I think maybe that ship has sailed at this point, but that was the hope. 
So here's one question that I have, Jeffrey, just sort of speaking to this morning's big news is the Hong Kong protests, the fact that the airport was shut down. And I'm trying to understand how Washington views all of this in light of the trade negotiations with China, with mainland China. Uh, you know, how does that unrest factor in, if at all? I think it's a pretty limited factor from the U.S. side. Uh, there are certainly some people who would like to see the U.S. more forcefully come out in favor of these protests in Hong Kong, but, but Trump is not one of them. The, the way it becomes really interesting is what the Chinese perceive as U.S. support for these protests, which makes them much more hesitant to deal with the U.S. as they blame them in their state media for the, the protests in Hong Kong. But it really highlights the sort of growing fissures, not only uh, socially for China and Xi Jinping trying to solidify his control uh, and his reign, but also economically. We got data overnight showing that China's credit growth tumbled to the second lowest amount this year uh, amid weak demand, not because the Chinese government is cracking down necessarily on leverage anymore so much. How does that help or hurt negotiations? I think it makes them much harder, sort of in two ways. One is that it's hard, obviously, for the Chinese, would be hard for them to do a deal with the U.S. as they blame them for fomenting the, the protests in Hong Kong. The other way, though, is that it puts Xi on the defensive internally within the CCP, and so I, I think it makes it harder well, uh, for him to pursue a trade deal. What is your update on his relationship with the Communist Party, and particularly after the summer meetings on the beach there, west, uh, east rather, of Beijing. I mean, what is his power this morning as he confronts the images from Hong Kong? Well, I think it's, it's hard to say with any certainty, but that the, what's going on in Hong Kong certainly is, makes it, I think, it puts his position uh, in a little bit of trouble. I mean, not that he is in any imminent danger, but it would make selling an agreement with the Americans harder, which he already had issues with doing in April and May. So, One thing I'm struggling to understand, especially as we confront this wall of uh, pessimism this morning, this wall of worry, is just how much the trade tensions have already eaten into global growth. And I'm wondering what negotiators in Washington, D.C. look at in order to assess that and how much that's weighing on them as they do uh, proceed with these negotiations. I think it's an interesting question. I think their mandate from Trump is much narrower, though. I think the trade negotiators themselves are focused on, you know, these issues between the U.S. and China, which are actually, you know, relatively longstanding. And I think their their remit from Trump is to, you know, work on the trade issues and let him worry about the economy. It's a, I think those broader economic worries are something for the political leadership and not the, the trade negotiators themselves. But, you know, I think Trump is going to be very sensitive to any sign that what he's well, doing with China has has sort of slowed the, the economy in a way that could be dangerous for his re-election. We're distracted by all sorts of things, folks. We're looking for Argentina to open up weaker peso. All the uh, protests in Hong Kong, the airport shut down. But you bring up, Jeffrey Wright, an incredibly important point which is we're poised and waiting. What is the next step we're going to see from the president of the United States? Uh, well, the tariffs will go into effect uh, on September 1st if nothing is done. But uh, Yeah, but what, even... what are you looking for if he tweets out in the next 48 hours? I mean, Lisa's glued to every presidential tweet, but Jeffrey Wright, what are you looking for? Uh, I think, you know, what the, the most important 
two things. One is whether the, the meeting between negotiators in September is still going forward. If it if it gets canceled, I think that's a very bad sign that the Chinese are, are losing interest in this. Secondly, the the expiration of the general license for Huawei, which is a week from today, uh, the way the U.S. handles that is going to be uh, you know pretty important for the future of the negotiations and, and how the Chinese see them as a negotiating partner. So, Jeffrey, I want to go back to something that you said, which I found really interesting, that negotiators don't really care about the economic fallout or it's not really their mandate to consider it. So is that not even on the table for them? I mean, in other words, uh, you know, ultimately, it just comes down to certain ideals and certain uh, sort of perfect uh, goals that President Trump has, but not necessarily what the fallout is. I think, you know, Trump is concerned about those things uh, to an extent, but I, his view, it seems to me, is that uh, the U.S. is in a stronger position vis-a-vis China. And so if he keeps pressing that advantage, then he'll eventually get uh, something out of the Chinese that will make it all worth it. Uh, you know, you can you can say that that won't work and, and that that's a bad theory, but I, I think they look at the Chinese trade data and the uh, the economy slowing there, and they see an advantage for the U.S., which you know has an economy that's still relatively strong. So, uh, I think they're preoccupied with their advantage over the Chinese and, and yeah. less focused on what it's doing to the domestic economy. Hey, Jeffrey, thank you so much. Jeffrey Wright with us this morning with the Rage Group. Well, one of the joys of trying to be so smart here at Bloomberg is I got a little bit of help. This morning, among others, Juan Pablo Spinetto, George Lay, uh, and of course, the wonderful Daniel Kensel helping us uh, with Latin America. One of the energy ADRs priced in New York is down 59%. That's an equity. Um, The Argentinian ETF down 27%. The MSCI uh, Argentine ETF. And of course, peso right now, uh, 59 on peso. I don't know the percentage move on that other than it's large. Someone to fold this in to what it means for markets in U.S. economic policy is Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Advisors. Julia, it's idiosyncratic until it's not. Right. How how not are we this morning? Are we still idiosyncratic? We're getting pretty, pretty, we're dancing pretty close to nonlinear dynamics, I would say. I mean, there is uh, global geopolitical risk on the rise pretty rapidly around the world, and that's coming against the backdrop of a slowing economy. So these two things can easily combine uh, to a self-fulfilling downward move in confidence. So I think we're teetering right now. I have used the word gamma more on television and banners in the last (laughs) six weeks than I have in the last six years. To remind, and no, no, Vetbill's name is not Gamma, it's Vetbill. But Gamma is uh-huh. acceleration on a linear basis. It's a big curve, and scary is on a logarithmic basis in finance. When you get a curve on a log chart, that's not good. Yeah. There's a lot of those out there right now, isn't there? There are, and the question is, are those isolated cases or uh, where we always have, you know, certain pockets of of distress around the global economy. So we can absorb a few isolated cases. The question is whether a more material 
China yeah. uh, is moving in that direction or is starting to hit those kinds of dynamics. And that's what we're watching very closely. So there was some weak credit data out overnight. The Hong Kong unrest could be very disruptive to a major global financial center. Right. So um, I think that's that's as material or more material than potentially the Argentine situation, which is also quite and uh, U.S. nine fifty a.m. ten a.m. Wall Street time. In about eleven hours, we'll get some kind of China fix off of seven point zero six yuan per dollar. Fold this into the August that Chairman Powell's enjoying. I mean, I know he's central <laughs> banker to the world. It's five. It's like it's three hundred miles more, Julia, from New York to Buenos Aires than it is from New York to Honolulu. I mean, it's a long ways away. How does Chairman Powell interpret that? Well, I would say he's probably not enjoying his August so much. I mean, after a a July meeting where um, it seemed like there was a lot of disagreement on the committee about whether they should be cutting rates at all, now we're back again talking about a 50 basis uh, potential cut in September. So. You know, it's very difficult to calibrate policy to these, you know, uncertainties that haven't yet materialized in U.S. data. Uh, So I think that's the challenge for him. I think they have signaled that they are in preemptive mode, preemptively addressing risks. So there's no doubt they're going to be cutting rates in September. The question is how much. I want to read this as carefully as I can. Again, the T-Live go. For those of you with the Bloomberg terminal, I can't say enough about keeping T-Live fixed on your screen. I'm going to go quickly here. Banco BBVA Argentina and Grupo Superviel sank as much as 65, 65%, while Grupo Financiero Galicia and Banco Macro tumbled only 60%, six zero. This is after downgrades from Morgan Stanley. I mean, it begins to feed on itself, Julianne. I'm going to say... And if the IS curve is the real economy and the money curve is the LM economy, uh, the LM curve is rather the money economy, all of a sudden it becomes a real economic discussion, doesn't it? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, there there is a lot of leverage around the world. There's a lot of dollar leverage both in Argentina and in China and, and other places that could be affected by these disruptive move. So, um, yeah, we may be we may be at a, a point where some of these pockets of distress will start to hit institutions that um, then then pull back on credit to other credit worthy borrowers. And that's the, that that's the seeds of a downturn. Right. When when bad credit starts to affect good yeah. credit. That's that's when when uh, when economies start to contract. What's your run rate on the U.S. economy right now? And if you brought it in, as others have in the last seventy-two hours? Yeah, we're running at just just below two percent, one point nine percent on Q3, um, which is still a very respectable performance. What we're watching for is retail sales later this week. We saw in the jobs report that hours growth uh, has started to slow a lot. And so that should manifest itself in other uh, indicators that we haven't seen yet. So we're going to be watching those demand indicators for signs uh, of that slowing. Let me do a data check here with Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Advisors. Uh, The Dow, negative 213, 26,073, SPX, negative 24, 2894. 
on the S&P 500. The VIX out two big figures back above 20. That long, long-term average, 20.16. And yields come in, and critically, yields are making new lows today. I'll do this to four digits. 10-year yield, 1.6778. Make that a 168. Two-year yield, well under a 160, 1.59% as well. Julia, one final question or discussion point, I should say. Comment on not the forecast of a 0% 10-year yield, but people modeling the what-ifs of a 10-year yield. Are we just bored because the Red Sox are terrible this year, or is this yeah. actually a legitimate debate? I mean, we see we see negative yields in a lot of countries. Those countries tend to have much lower potential growth um, and um, much more intervention. It's, they've seen much more intervention from the central bank. Is it possible in the U.S.? It certainly is. Um, it's disruptive, though. If we we yeah. start looking at negative yields around the world, think of the what that does to the models for pension funds and insurance companies. Um, how does our financial infrastructure manage? Um, how does saving and investment proceed in a negative interest rate world? So um, we're still a ways away. We're we're only at 168 on the on the 10 year, Tom. So. Uh, we've still got 168 basis points to work with here. Yeah, we've got less than nine basis points on the two's 10 spread, 8.576 on that yeah. massive curve flattening that we've seen. Julia, we got to talk here uh, soon. Julia Coronado, thank you so much, Dr. Coronado, Macro Policy uh, Advisors. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.